Hi, welcome to season 2, episode 2. I'm your host Noel Woodward and this is For the Love of. For the Love of Urbanism, Dynamic Domains of Antarctica with Swadeep Chaturvedi. In this episode, an architectural association graduate shares his journey as we discuss his thesis project, Dynamic Domains of Antarctica. As an architect and urbanist, Swadeep wants to understand what it takes to convince stakeholders towards the long-term benefits of a climate-sensitive policy system in sync with planetary health and a more robust economic growth. He firmly believes that architects and urbanists have an important role to play in this transition and is keenly involved in the process through an extremely intriguing microforestry venture. So here goes. Hi Swadeep, welcome to the second episode. So what's been up? Could you just talk about what you've been doing during the pandemic <laughs> and then follow follow it up with a short introduction? Hi Noel, it's been a very long time since we've been in touch and uh, yeah. I mean of course the world is ending. <laughs> I'm just kidding, <laughs> but that's how I always like try to make it lighter. But I mean, I was traveling back from London to Delhi in February. because my course mm. got over in jan and i was lucky yeah. to be here before the shit went down so the thing is that of course like since being in bhopal for 5 years and then going out for 2 mm. years 7 years since i left delhi and then suddenly <laughs> the doors gets locked <laughs> everything goes down you cannot drive you cannot go anywhere and then you have to stay with your parents for a month or like 6 weeks or something it was a I would say it was a brilliant experience actually. I wouldn't I wouldn't be like really negative about it, but it was mm. a very tough transition to to get used to. But now yeah. like looking back at the last 6 months that's like gone through, I think that it's been like a like a very very an important shift which mm. like uh, led me to a lot of self introspection. and a lot of time to connect with the family which might not always yeah. be as bad as like people from our generation might assume it to be but yeah like so far so good i think the at the the bottom line is that health and the safety of your close ones and in general the people is the priority and that's what the last 6 months have taught me that as far as the health is concerned you're okay you're fit and the rest of the things can just like get managed you can yeah. always walk around it and whatever but yeah that's about it how about you how was it for you mm it's been okay i guess i i guess just gotten used to it now yeah i've uh, not been stepping out much except to take the dog out for a walk yeah, so that's a good change <laughs> that's 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 all i do when i go out and um 
otherwise i've got a desk now i've got yeah. i bought myself a chair so <laughs> i've got my own little study space where i work from so um and we just need to wait and see what happens in the next couple of months i guess yeah agreed so just before we start could you just um, give a brief introduction of yourself um starting from maybe from college and then going forward yeah i mean uh... raised in delhi first of all but the interesting thing about my family is that even though my parents shifted to delhi from ajmer like in the 80s but like they would go back to ajmer to give birth to me like all of my cousins mm. which is a strange thing but because of that my birth place is ajmer and mm. even though i've been raised in delhi but because i have i've had such a such a important connection with ajmer i've always had like this hmm. like you can imagine to me a typical delhi boy but because i've always had this connect with ajmer i've also had this small town um sort of foundations inbuilt in in me and uh, schooling happened i've always been in one school and it was i would say a pretty good experience but I guess the the life changing experience was actually at SPA Bhopal, and it was so profound that I hardly have any memories of my school. I do, mm-hmm. but they're all more of like imageries and not like narratives and and like stories. But they're just like really vivid imageries. But the real watershed moment of my life was SPA Bhopal, and it's actually very funny because. i had no plans of going to spo park uh i had given like the a triple e and nata and all these things yeah and i had decent score in in each of them and uh, because i didn't get through sp delhi so like spo park was an option and then usap uh yeah. was another option and i decided to go with usap and like suddenly one day one of my father's colleague they like you're missing spa what's what's going on like at least go and check it out and then yeah. my father uh, comes to me and he's like um, this is the scene and if you want to if you're interested then we can just like visit the city and let's just check it out there's no stress there's no pressure and until that moment the only thing i knew about bhopal was the bhopal gas tragedy and this this yeah. might be a politically incorrect statement to make but that's the truth i had absolutely yeah. no information no imagery no vision of the city i didn't know the culture i didn't know the demographics nothing and then i'm like okay and then we <laughs> we go to bhopal and uh, i was a week late like when the session had started when the batch had started i was a week late even though like i was admitted and uh, the moment i entered the city the first thought that came to my mind was that this is a vacation i am here for a vacation <laughs> there's like this huge 35 km long lake and then there you take a turn there's another water body there's some sort of uh, forest system whatever it is it was just a very very intriguing city and even till date i am i'm sure like no matter who we talk to from sp bhopal everybody would agree that i don't i haven't experienced a city like that in india and hmm. probably one of the reasons behind that is uh, the less population density but yeah. because of all of these situations uh, i think like sv upal was a very very important experience for me personally and uh, like architectural education is one thing and life skill education is another thing 
and to be able to step out of a city like delhi and go to a tier 2 tier 3 city to actually live and experience a mm. city was a very big transition because i think like uh, as far as i'm concerned living in a very secured environment in a city like delhi i never really got a chance to interact with the urban fabric it was always mm. like an enclosed system you, you go in a bus you go to the school you come back in a car you go to a mall you go to something it's it's all closed systems and but yeah. you but you reach bhopal and then you actually start interacting with the smallest elements of a city no matter who mm. it is no matter what it is where it is and it just it's just like a i don't know like it it induced a really huge ball of energy inside of me and then architecture happened and uh, for me like architecture is is the mother of all education and art and everything and usually i don't like to define architecture as mainstream uh, commercial version of like buildings and designing mm. of spaces and all that but like as far as i'm concerned architecture for me essentially is space making and what i mean by space making is that there's just like different scales of space making it can either be a product it can either be an interior space it can be a built space it can be a neighborhood cities and eventually maybe even like landscapes and and who knows 100 years down the line you would be designing planets so that can also be space making and uh of course it's it's a bit abstract definition of architecture but that's how i see it and mm. and any any individual who falls in these categories for me is an architect and that's how i also define myself but uh, yeah i mean like in the five years at spopal i realized that i've always had this interest in in understanding the the intricacies of the largest scale possible of space making and that mm. means that it could be either geographical or or even if i have to plan let's say for example if i'm in a group and I'm, and we have we have to design a, a housing project then my mm. first trick would be to actually plan the whole uh, development instead of actually making the unit whilst some yeah. of my other colleagues would be interested in doing um unit making and like space making in on on that scale but mm. for for me it's always been like starting from top to bottom mm. and that's how i actually went on to like uh, do my undergrad thesis as well which was basically rehabilitation of an abandoned mine in um, in like the outskirts of delhi so yeah. not even realizing that it's a landscape project but i was just interested in this uh, in this scheme and then i got into it and then i even fell deeper into the uh, the well of landscape and urbanism and then the thesis even though like with a lot of struggles and challenges at the end it was a pretty decent product and that uplifted my uh, i don't know like curiosity towards it even more and then uh, eventually i decided to do landscape urbanism at the aa and yeah. uh, that was another brilliant moment for me not because of the legacy of the school or something but purely because of how the thought process that i have uh, inherited like because of sp bopal actually was perfect for for it to be even more amplified over there mm. and then it was like a perfect marriage 
as far as the school of thought is concerned sp bopal and the a and it went on to grow even more than that and yeah like uh, landscape urbanism over there is is uh, people actually confuse it to be landscape architecture because even though it mm. was an if, even though it was a masters of architecture in landscape urbanism but landscape urbanism can be a misleading terminology because it isn't like designing of parks or farmhouses or gardens i don't like personally i don't even know half of the species that are there down the street in my house yeah so i'm one of those but landscape urbanism over there what it meant was uh, that there are policies in place which actually shape the the larger scale of the the space making which is right now geographical and so a very short example there can be subsidies um for sheep farmers to graze sheep on top of a hill and what that does is that those sheep keep on grazing the top of the hill and then as soon as there is a, a rainfall or like a huge uh, waterfall then there's a there's a flash flood which goes down the the urban settlement below the hill so what what that basically means is that you're making a policy which is resulting in a very harmful consequence for for a city and yeah. the only point is that you're taking down a lot of trees and there's no water retention there's no there's no natural drainage left so this is a very very small example of the scheme that we usually try to explore over there and then of course at the end of the uh, of the course i ended up researching on antarctica and trying to manage ecological resources over there we which about which we might also talk later in the talk so yeah i guess that's like the basic brief of who i am yes so yeah yeah cool so um just just uh, before we head yeah to your thesis there are a couple of points before that sure, so sure. when it kind of comes to education today mm-hmm. um and let me be more specific architectural education especially yeah. since there's kind of scope to truly make this feel so much more than yeah. what it is today yeah. a true interdisciplinary cohesive and complete sphere that kind of deals with what you've mentioned yeah. as part of the brief that talks about your masters in landscape urbanism at the a so yeah. i'm just going to quote you here sure uh, the the program is interested in the design of spatial policies organizational models regulatory plans and visual decision making tools with the capacity to integrate design within the economic social cultural and political frameworks so i i think you've mentioned that a bit you give an example and you talk yeah. about how those entire systems and management frameworks work mm-hmm. but um could you just uh, maybe elaborate a bit more on that yeah i mean um, so first of all like as far as architecture is concerned i think the most important thing that we need to understand is that mainstream architecture has this uh, intricate tendency to to build you know like like just intervene into a system and uh, usually it's it, it's coming out from an anthropogenic uh, streak wherein the human thought is at the yeah. the peak of everything and like usually what that does is that it tries to ignore the whole context it tries to ignore the the social fabric the and a lot of challenges around it but the first streak is to actually intervene and leave a footprint of space making which is actually like in hindsight it is a very very empowering uh, idea if you think about it to be able to 
channel people in a space which is actually created by you it's actually very empowering but i think like even though a lot of architects feel privileged and really important because of that they often forget that that has a very big responsibility as well and uh, so one criticism that i have for like architects and i would include myself in that is that maybe the best design is not to design all the time and <laughs> let it be so yeah that's how i'll see it and uh, the policies and the 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 broader the broader idea of how the cities and built should be conducted has a lot of has a very big gap and we had this uh, we had this huge debate in our program at a that who are the policy makers and what what skill set do they have to make these policies and who are we like even mm-hmm. the, the biggest question was for them that who are we as landscape urbanists like mm-hmm. if we go out in the in the field if we go out in the in the actual arena or something like that then how do we like make everyone perceive us what role are we yeah. supposed to play and that is the biggest challenge of a society i think that not the right personnels and the right individuals with the ba- with the necessary background are actually involved in policy making and space making for mm. our for our neighborhoods for our even the rwa like like the colonies they they yeah. i i personally feel that they're handicapped when when it comes to these these issues i don't think the politicians or the bureaucrats or the diplomats are they have the adequate knowledge to be able to manage let's say the drainage system the fisheries the forest systems the the natural resources of your country they need to be managed by specialists mm. and those yeah. specialists are supposed to be placed in a position where they're able to influence the policy makers or they design the policy themselves so for me that's the that's the biggest step that we could take as a society down the line and at some point i like if i am to be optimist then at some point that will happen and yeah i mean if if that sort of answers the the yeah. question yeah 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 i think uh, inherently as architects we need to be optimistic i think we yeah. we, we are just built that way i mean True. we can't see the world in any other way yeah. but uh, there's another interesting point that now i've got i think mm-hmm. three people on the show from spa bopal yeah tarun nipun and you now okay yeah okay yeah so um and all three of you <laughs> have spoken about <laughs> the same thing where we say yeah, we don't I need think... to build and <laughs> and, and and i think uh, uh, p- people listening to this will be like okay fine i mean are these architects <laughs> are these really architects what yeah. is spi bopal doing <laughs> so uh, so yeah, that yeah. that's an interesting point i mean and this is something that um, i i think i've only discussed this with probably tarun mm-hmm. the same point and maybe to an extent when nipun since he was in my batch but i've never spoken to you about this yeah. at all yeah. so it's it's interesting that that thought process is kind of percolated exactly yeah it's trickled down trickled down to the batches over the years so that's yeah, interesting yeah. yeah and i think like a very big role like a very big reason behind such a school of thought which is sort of like metaphysically spreaded throughout the college hmm. is to do with the city and the context hmm. and the whole situation that you are in yeah and the fact that at sp bopal we got a brilliant opportunity 
to interact with individuals from all the states in the country yeah which are in which are like so dynamic diverse like languages food culture it was a huge explosion of experience for me so yeah i think like a lot of our common school of thought is to do with that even though like we might have huge differences in all con- in all kinds of like ideological cultural belief systems mm. but spending 5 years in sp bhopal has like this uh, very strong foundations which i fe- which i which i like i'm eager to see in a lot of other architects from all over the country but surprisingly sometimes it's there's there's a there's a slight gap mm. but i might be wrong that there might be bias in this but anyway yeah So what you guys heard at the beginning of the episode was the soundscape of Antarctica and I borrowed the idea from Julia Foskris and Francesco Banderin's discussion with Hugh Broughton where she starts by saying that our seventh continent is so often neglected by our collective conscience which kind of struck a chord and made me think of all those um, regions on our planet which exist and have existed for millions of years but are slowly being kind of talked about because of their rapid deterioration um and mind you none of this exists in, in a vacuum you've been speaking about systems and our planet is a collection of systems and cycles that make everything chug along and even a slight change in those processes could have um deleterious effects on the whole and the effects of those very changes are already being felt the world over so could you kind of discuss this everything about it whatever um what comes to mind maybe you could start with a broader overarching idea and taking those thoughts forward and then ultimately move towards dynamic domains all right so like this is very interesting because antarctica was for me was like a completely alien subject and often like like anyone else it's it's more like when you talk about antarctica there's this mm. imagery of white sheets of nothingness and because there's nothingness yeah. you often tend to like ignore apart from actually appreciating the national geographic images of antarctica but obviously now like because of this whole climate crisis situation like the glaciers and the polar caps have started generating a lot of discussion and conversation and maybe like the 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 situation was was moving into a direction where i would actually end up doing something related to that and that happened so so usually like at a uh, okay actually let's not talk about that but let's talk about antarctica so i think like antarctica is uh, is needs to be like the center of conversation with a lot of uh, important discussions like a lot of important global discussions because it has a direct relation with all the weather cycles and all the atmospheric cycles not only in the southern ocean not only in the southern hemisphere but like throughout the planet and there are like various examples of that like when i started reading about antarctica yeah there were like possibly hundreds of examples where you could actually connect global linkages which which are very fragile because antarctica is a very fragile ecosystem and uh, and like it's very interesting actually if you if you if you look at how the world map is projected and how the imagery of a global map is you never see antarctica it's always like this huge distorted piece of land which actually isn't as big as it as you can see on a on a mercator 
projection of a global map mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i think like one of the ways you can actually focus your conversation to antarctica is changing the projection and putting antarctica in the middle of the map so and there like really interesting um, projections for that there's lee conformal projection and all those things but uh, yeah so like uh, if you actually google search antarctica you would the first thing that you would find is this really huge glacier called the thwaites glacier and it's very important these days because the scientists are saying that just the whole glacier is sort of structurally collapsing and like okay like through 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 research and through the volume of that glacier you can say that the if that glacier collapses then the sea level rise is going to be less than a meter but the problem is that first of all we don't know the time frame of this mm. this could happen in like 50 to 70 years this could happen in like 20 to 30 years we don't know the time frame we cannot be sure about it and the, even the bigger challenge is that if that in really integral glacier collapses then you don't know what the other glaciers would react like how the other glaciers would react to that what's the chain reaction exactly right? and mm. and if if things go wrong then there could be a huge series of glaciers that start falling into that trap and then then this could like i don't want to be pessimistic but, <laughs> but uh, i mean twitch glacier you know like there's this also there's there's always like two sides to anything and they're like really radical climate crisis fighters and advocates and then they're like completely different spectrum like on the different end of the spectrum and uh, they say that like we face such global challenges in previously mm. and we always like come out of it and we don't have to worry about it and we have to develop we have to do this we have to do that and all of those things so there's always like a sort of a gap into the seriousness of it because i agree that a lot of uh, climate crisis activists are very radical who actually end up mm. blocking the streets who actually end up damaging the the public infrastructure and i don't think mm. that's the way to go about it if you actually want to like get into the conversation of antarctica then there has to be a conscious decision to do that so yeah i mean and it's time that we start talking about these things because after all these are like really important global commons and global commons does not mean that you don't have any any stake in it because it's global and every individual and everyone has a stake in it not because mm. you have some moral responsibility towards it but you want to be safe and that is the biggest gap i think that there exists in the society right now towards climate crisis where they don't think it's real and and even if they think it's real they think that it's to save mother earth to this like really romantic idea of earth being a mother which is okay mm. but it's not to save mother earth it's to save your own existence mother earth is going to be there yeah. forever she's going to yeah. like project a new revolutionary timeline and she wouldn't even care about you so it's basically to to make sure that you are there like 100 years down the line you you climate crisis is a crisis for you not for anyone else not for the tigers not for the elephants not for like glaciers nothing it's just to save the existence as we know it and that is the biggest shift that needs to come to our to our social like system and so that we can act about it people people won't yeah. act about it till they realize that it's to do with them than anyone else yeah yeah 
So moving on to dynamic domains, which was recognized as an exemplary project by the AA, mm-hmm. um, and was developed within the context of Antarctica 200, which is a cross-disciplinary project co-directed by Francesco Banderin and Julia Fuscari. Uh, so dynamic domains analyzes the existing models of human management of the fragile Antarctic marine with a focus on resource extraction. The title itself is extremely fascinating, and the research and proposal even more so. So let's just uh, chart the course chronologically of the idea behind this, how it started, and ultimately how it all came together. Yeah. So usually, what happens at the A is that the the framework of the projects is usually um, restricted towards the United Kingdom, and that's to do with like. Uh, data collection and the availability of different kinds of data sets satellite imagery and all that but we were lucky enough to be uh, given a chance by antarctica 200 because um, they were like in touch with our our directors program directors eduardo rico and uh, alfredo and um, they they asked if like one of your um, student groups would be interested in actually uh, researching on antarctica and we were daniel kish like my my teammate who is from hungary had a really really uh, curious mind as well and since we had already decided that we were going to be collaborating for the thesis we had the we had the call to make and we did it because first of all you get to interact with like new minds and you get to learn about something completely completely uh, i wouldn't say abstract but like something which you have never never really explored and uh, once we started doing that it was the first two to three months was an absolute overwhelming load of information and mm. one could say a disaster as well because there was so much information we couldn't actually manage all those information and we were all over the place yeah. at one point we would we would be studying the newly invasive species of algae or like the green grass that's slowly showing in antarctica the other day we would be thinking about the thwaites glacier and the next day we would be thinking about contamination and like public infrastructure and all these uh, resource stations that these countries have placed throughout the con- mm-hmm. uh, throughout the continent and uh, actually this 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 the whole process of actually narrowing down our our whole scope of research was was very challenging to be very honest because we had no idea about antarctica and another another challenge with antarctica is and like thinking about the antarctic system is that there is not really a social fabric attached to it which is which is hmm. which has organically grow grew over there because there's there's never been a native uh, indigenous human society over there apart from a few argentinian and chilean colonies in like a very remote corner of the antarctic peninsula and uh, that's about it and the rest of the continent is basically pockets of resource stations from all kinds of countries like the european union usa india china russia and so on and so forth so even though it was like a very very interesting piece of information of how all these countries have their territorial uh, agendas and like and in the name of scientific pursuit how they sort of occupy or like try to assess a very strategic location so all of this happened and then 
like while doing all of this research we realized that there are even though there might not be any any social activity going on uh but there's like this huge network of fisheries that exist in antarctica and in my mind it used to be like i always assume that fisheries can exist in a you know in a territorially acclaimed region so for example if 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 the indian government has to fish somewhere then they would be fishing in their territorial waters and then when i realized that there are a few countries that are actually fishing in a global common like antarctica their own economic incentives I, I, we suddenly like started going deeper into it and then hmm. there there's like a huge huge network of uh, fisheries and countries and like these fishing vessels that are actually huge industrial machines which are actually like taking out a huge swarm of fish at once it's not even like you're fishing yeah. for a fish and then you come out and then you go they're like a huge swarm of fish is taken at once and there's a huge network of it and it's like it's recognized it's 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 trying to be managed right now and like they claim it to be very sustainable and all of that but it exists and it's a global common it's 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 like a global property and there are few countries who are economically exploiting it so we start getting deeper into it and even though personally i don't have an issue that there's like an economic incentive into it it's just a matter of managing the ecological resources as properly as you can and like uh if you go like when we start going even deeper into this whole scheme we realize that uh, the biggest fishing industry over there is of the species called antarctic krill it's a very very small um, aquatic animal and uh, but it's a very important aquatic animal because it's a keystone species in the whole like the food chain and it's it's fed like the whales feed upon it the the penguins feed upon it the other all kinds of predatory species feed upon it and the krill itself actually feeds upon other microorganisms which have this intricate connection with the the nutrients that are dissolving from the glaciers into the ocean so it's a very very complex network of of like natural processes and obviously when you start like taking out one step out of this whole process and for what that is the biggest that is the biggest uh, i mean that's the funniest thing because uh, when we started looking into the krill market the antarctic krill market we realized that uh, the the krill is basically used for three things it's used for human supplements because it's really really high in omega 3 um, uh, nutrients and then it's used in uh, it's used for pet feed like can you imagine mm-hmm. like you're fishing in antarctica just so <laughs> that your dog in in your house can have a very healthy diet that's the second and the third is uh, it's actually used for aquaculture feed so for example if i have fisheries in norway then i'm getting antarctic krill just so that my fish in the aquaculture pond can grow like exponentially so so like that's the whole that's the whole idea and then after all we realized that the the salmon the salmon fish that we actually buy from marks and spencers in london feeds mm. upon the antarctic krill so it's a it's a very big it's a very big uh, like mess because people don't realize that i'm going to the yeah. marks and spencer i'm having the salmon and i'm enjoying my day 
the the bottom line of the whole research is this that yeah. i'm having i'm having a direct footprint on the economic uh, incentive that these companies have, are getting to fish in antarctic waters which has a huge consequence on on like this this natural process so so this is how like the whole foundation of the research got established it's very very interesting your entire yeah. research i've gone through it a couple of times now and you were just talking about how it was such an effort to kind of collate all that data and kind of put it out there but you both of you guys have done a remarkable job of putting it out there and making it easy for people to read it's not this uh you know huge document that crunches numbers and data and it's not as it's not overwhelming for the person who's reading it right. so hats off to you guys for kind of putting that together Thanks. and um, second is what's interesting is this directly kind of uh, links to my next question mm-hmm. where you speak about very complex systems and networks that exist but at the very core of it they're actually very very simple things to understand and comprehend mm-hmm. um but there's not enough emphasis on the effects of climate change right from the microscopic level which if left to fend for itself could kind of have huge ramifications for us like you mentioned um yeah. and you've in in the research you've highlighted some predictive systems and models that could be used to manage and protect these dynamic domains including some intriguing mm-hmm. methods of spreading awareness uh you spoke about marks and spencers yeah. and the connection with uh you know uh, the fish that you're eating and how they've grown through aqu- aquaculture and i, I think mm-hmm. awareness is the first step so could you talk about that a bit yeah i mean uh, like that's the point that as an individual in an anthropogenic world all i'm concerned about is that i am healthy i'm getting my nutrients my dog is healthy because the dog is getting nutrients and my seafood is mm-hmm. a very very like really good quality seafood and that's like yeah. a very very um, i think it's 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 a it's a social system that we're living in right now and probably that's going to evolve in some time but there needs to be like a raise in the consciousness of our of our awareness that it's it's not a, a an ego bubble that we're living in but everything is like in sync everything is in connection and we were trying our hardest to break free of that connection but that's just going to like destroy the framework of your existence and that's obviously the problem is that like all of these thoughts and ideas are sometimes very abstract to a lot of people mm. who are not into into climate science or environmental sciences and all that but uh, i think till the time someone actually goes through Uh, a negative situation that till that time nobody actually yeah. actually cares about it so i don't i don't want to say that there has to be like a like a global event which actually makes everyone realizes that this is what it is but i i just hope that everything like uh, falls into place before that but uh, so coming back to to the question i think like one of the things that we tried doing was as a as a as a product or as a solution that we were trying to give through this whole research of managing krill fishery was that at the at the at the level of the stakeholder at the level of the end user who's actually going to be buying a salmon which is coming directly from antarctic krill is the fact that there needs to be a 
a sort of a label system which creates a connect of uh, of of the information that the, the salmon is actually coming from antarctica yeah. and let's just see where it goes from there nobody is saying that don't buy or buy but it's just a matter of small label that attached get, that gets attached to the fish which says that this is the location that the fish is coming from and uh, yeah and let's see if if people are like reacting to that or not and i'm sure they would because like the world is in a constant process of evolution and even before that like if like to actually discuss the the question of awareness we would actually have to go back to the whole proposal that we started giving and the idea was to be able to actually map the the whole ecological process on which the antarctic krill depends and has a, has an influence on and we found out that there's this like microorganism called the um, i mean it's a, it's it's an algae it's a, it's 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 basically a phytoplankton and uh, what happens is that during the summers the ice it starts like it starts to dissolve into the ocean and that dissolves a lot of nutrients into the water and as soon as those nutrients get dissolved there's this there's this like a huge uh, explosion of microorganisms around those nutrients to feed upon it and this is a cyclical process like it's it's an annual process it keeps on happening like yeah. that the glaciers melt the the algae comes around and then they feed upon the nutrients and then what that does is that the krill gathers upon the algae and they start feeding upon it and then the whales and the penguins would come over there so the problem is that because these these this data can be mapped the the fishing vessels have a very good idea of where to go and where to fish and and because obviously like intelligent people and uh, what that does is that it overlaps a lot of like key 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 processes so for example the fishing vessels are actually fishing right next to the penguin colonies in the antarctic peninsula and you're taking mm. a lot of important feed of the peng- peng- penguin colonies and this has a potential to actually like like have a very very negative consequence on the whole structure of the antarctic ecosystem that you you're taking out a species just by one step of actually uh fishing over there so the idea was to be able to um, map these um, like these uh, phytoplankton booms and the, what, how that can be done is that these are basically like you know they like grass or what what the trees are to the to the terrestrial uh, ecosystem the micro phytoplankton are to the aquatic ecosystem so the, like the one way to actually map uh, these sort of sp- organisms is to be able to see the chlorophyll concentration from the satellite imagery and the darker the shade of the chlorophyll concentration the more chances of antarctic krill actually coming over there so the idea was to not actually um manage these uh, ecological resources in fixed boundaries like the convention of conservation of antarctic marine living resources the camlar what they do is they basically have created this like huge concentric grid of circles and then they divide sectors in it and they allow a, a number of uh, like a particular amount of krill to be fished over there but our opposition is that this cannot work because this is not how nature works nature does not work in imaginary frozen lines on the face of the planet they don't care they don't even understand that 
how this needs to be managed is in a very dynamic way wherein the lines actually represent the chlorophyll concentration and therefore the phytoplankton concentration and therefore obviously the antarctic rail concentration and obviously this concentration is going to be dynamic according to the different points of the season and different processes and that is the idea of the whole proposal which is to to incentivize different uh, zones according to the concentration level if the concentration level is higher there's less incentive if there's a concentration is lower i mean sorry the other way around if the concentration is higher there's more incentive and if the concentration is lower then there's lesser incentive and then each of the fishing vessel is to be given with a limited number of incentives or credits which they can actually utilize if they want to fish like a lot they have to have to like give more credits so that they using more effort and i mean lesser effort and lesser time to have more krill come to them immediately and if you have less credits then you might as well go in you know you know remote location where where there's like a lesser chance of you getting it so there's this like a huge dynamic equation that needs to be established for for managing these ecological resources and that was that was the basic fundamentals of um, of proposing how to manage antarctic krill and whilst you're doing that whilst you actually realize that there's a zone 1 zone 2 zone 3 zone 4 and there's like a different level of incentive to do, to to fish over there we realize that this information needs to be translated to the end user which is basically the the guy walking in the london street taking salmon in the, from marks and spencer he needs to realize that what kind of a location and what kind of a sensitive sensitivity zone is the salmon coming from and as soon as this information is communicated there has to be some sort of an evolution of consciousness wherein they understand because i'm sure like 90% of the people don't even realize that they have a footprint in antarctic system they just like enjoying salmon and i don't even blame them because like what what else do you expect them to do they just like having a salmon but as soon as you start labeling these products and and you start uh, managing these ecological resources in a very dynamic way which can be communicated to the end user then i think this naturally evolves the whole supply chain and raises more awareness and uh, actually it does not even uh, ban the krill fishing it's just making it more efficient and more in sync with the natural processes instead of just like uprooting the whole industry and like that because that's not going to solve anything either there has to be like a process of managing everything so that's how we see like ecological resources such as antarctic krill to be managed in the antarctic system that was part 1 you just listened to In part 2, we take the conversation forward and delve deeper into the semantics of landscape urbanism, the geopolitics involved, and Swadeep's new project, Treezy, an afforestation and microforestry venture. The episode airs next Saturday, so stay tuned. To read more about dynamic domains as well as a whole slew of references and material, head on over to the show notes. To keep up to date with whatever's going on, you can follow us on Instagram at for the love of podcast or You could even write to us with your thoughts, ideas and feedback at connect@fortheloveofpodcast.in. Subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
See you next week and stay safe. This is for the love of.